Let's stand for the reading of God's word. Follow along in the bulletin or open your own Bible or the Blue Pew Bible in front of you. I'm going to begin reading in verse 1 of 2 Samuel 24. I'll go through verse 4, then I will skip to verse 9, and we will read through verse 25. Again, the anger of the Lord was kindled against Israel, and he incited David against them, saying, Go, number Israel and Judah. So the king said to Joab, the commander of the army who was with him, Go through all the tribes of Israel from Dan to Beersheba, and number the people that I may know the number of the people. But Joab said to the king, may the Lord your God add to the people a hundred times as many as they are, while the eyes of my Lord the king still see it. But why does my Lord the king delight in this thing? But the king's word prevailed against Joab and the commanders of the army. So Joab and the commanders of the army went out from the presence of the king to number the people of Israel. Verse 9, and Joab gave the sum of the numbering of the people to the king. In Israel, there were 800,000 valiant men who drew the sword, and the men of Judah were 500,000. But David's heart struck him after he had numbered the people. And David said to the Lord, I have sinned greatly in what I've done. But now, O Lord, please take away the iniquity of your servant, for I have done very foolishly. And when David arose in the morning, the word of the Lord came to the prophet Gad, David's seer, saying, Go and say to David, Thus says the Lord, Three things I offer you. Choose one of them that I may do it to you. So Gad came to David and told him and said to him, Shall three years of famine come to you in your land? Or will you flee three months before your foes while they pursue you? Or shall there be three days pestilence in your land? Now consider and decide what answer I shall return to him who sent me. Then David said to Gad, I am in great distress. Let us fall into the hand of the Lord, for his mercy is great. But let me not fall into the hand of man. So the Lord sent a pestilence on Israel from the morning until the appointed time. And there died the people from Dan to Beersheba, 70,000 men. And when the angel stretched out his hand toward Jerusalem to destroy it, the Lord relented from the calamity and said to the angel who was working destruction among the people, it is enough now, now stay your hand. And the angel of the Lord was by the threshing floor of Arnah, the Jebusite. Then David spoke to the Lord when he saw the angel who was striking the people and said, behold, I have sinned and I've done wickedly, but these sheep... What have they done? Please let your hand be against me and against my father's house. And Gad came that day to David and said to him, Go up, raise an altar to the Lord on the threshing floor of Arnah, the Jebusite. So David went up at Gad's word as the Lord commanded. And when Arnah looked down, he saw the king and his servants coming on toward him. And Arnah went and and paid homage to the king with his face to the ground. And Arnah said, Why has my Lord the king come to his servant? David said, To buy the threshing floor from you in order to build an altar to the Lord that the plague may be averted from the people. Then Arnau said to David, Let my Lord the king take up and offer what seems good to him. 
Here are the oxen for the burnt offering and the threshing sledges and the yokes of the oxen for the wood. All this, O king, Aranah gives to the king. And Aranah said to the king, may the Lord your God accept you. But the king said to Aranah, no, but I will buy it from you for a price. I will not offer burnt offerings to the Lord my God that cost me nothing. So David bought the threshing floor and the oxen for 50 shekels of silver. And David built there an altar to the Lord and offered burnt offerings and peace offerings. So the Lord responded to the plea for the land and the plague was averted from Israel. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Please be seated. Father, we pause and we take a deep breath asking for you to illuminate these words, your very word. Teach us what we need to see. Enable us to believe. Bring men and women and children this day to saving faith. Let us fall upon your hand of mercy, for it is great. Let us see what all of this meant for David and what all of it means for us, your people who've trusted in the ultimate sacrifice, the atonement of our Savior Jesus, and whose name we pray. Amen. All scripture is God-breathed and is useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness. Not some of the scriptures, all scripture. The temptation when we come across passages that reveal the character of God and his attributes, his holiness, his righteousness, his justice, his wrath, and his mercy often cause us to wonder, how would I explain this to someone who doesn't believe, someone who is not attracted to Christianity? My friends, what that actually does is reveal to us certain things that we might take to the Scripture and certain things that we might be ashamed of that the Scriptures say, but that should never be our posture because we as his children believe that all Scripture is God-breathed. These are the words that God wanted included in his holy word, words that for generations believers would read and meditate upon and learn from, not just happy endings, not just bows tied around a package that looks like a, a man whose life had been lived and lessons had been learned and he would never again defame God or despise his word. But that's not how it ends. And the reason it doesn't end this way is because David is not our savior. David is not perfect. He is a man after God's own heart, but he is not the man. And so the story begins this last chapter in First and Second Samuel, with God being angry. So God is a God that has righteous anger. He is a God who is holy. If he wasn't holy, if he wasn't righteous, if he wasn't full of 
of a perfect sense of justice and the power to enact that justice, we all would be doomed. But this God who possesses all of those characteristics, who is holy and every attribute is holy, wraps it in mercy. But mercy doesn't mean that there aren't consequences to those actions which are against God's word. And so we are told in the beginning of this chapter that the anger of the Lord was against the people of Israel. And then we're told in verse 1, look carefully there, that the Lord incited David against them. Now, if you're reading carefully, this might trouble you. The Lord incites David to do that which David does, which he is later going to confess his sin because it is. And so immediately you have trouble. How can, how can I re, you know, reconcile these two things? Because God is not the one who's a part of evil and causing sin. Now what's interesting is the parallel passage to this. In fact, I wanna encourage you to grab the Blue Pew Bible in front of you or your own and turn to 1 Chronicles chapter 21. It's about this far over to the right. First Chronicles 21 is the timeline and the parallel to this account. The man carried along to write 2 Samuel 24 says, again, the anger of the Lord was kindled against Israel and he incited David against them saying, but now let's look at 2nd or 1 Chronicles 21. Then Satan stood against Israel, and he incited David to number Israel. Do you see that? Does everybody see it? And it's not just because I was on sabbatical studying spiritual warfare that I found this. It was here before then. What's happening? This is God's permissive will like it was in Job. Satan is active, not just in the New Testament church, but has been active from the beginning, seeking to take the word of God out of people's lives so that they would despise it and not trust it and not obey it. And here, God's people have been disobedient and the Lord is angry. Satan has moved, he's sought permission and here, this mysterious work, this spiritual work is taking place where David then does what is wrong. He takes a census. Now, what we don't know is why the census in itself was wrong. Censuses were taken, but in this case, it was wrong. We don't know exactly why it's wrong, so anything I say about that might not be exactly true, but we can draw some conclusions as to what might have been going on in David's mind. Whether I'm right or not, that doesn't ultimately matter because of this. David knew it was wrong. David knew it was wrong because Joab said to him immediately, why are you doing this? Look at what you have. Why are you sending us to, to number? 
And in 1 Chronicles 21, Joab in verse 3, I hope you're still there, says this. May the Lord add to his people a hundred times as many as they are. Are they not, my Lord, the king? All of them, my Lord's servants? Why then should my Lord require this? Now pay attention. Why should it be a cause of guilt for Israel? So Joab, the commander, is telling the king, don't do this. This is going to bring guilt upon Israel because it's a sin. We don't know exactly why it's a sin. But my guess and the best commentators I read all point to this, that David is counting the men because of pride, because of ambition, because of his desire to see the confidence and trust that he could have in what he has created, but he hasn't. It's all been a blessing from God, and God would bless him with even more. But it's very possible in his flesh when he sent Joab to count that he was beginning to move away from that which the Lord wanted, an absolute dependence on his, God's ability to continue to lead the people of Israel against any nation he called them to conquer. So we don't know exactly why. We can conjecture, but we know this. David knew it was wrong. Joab told him so. But here's the real sin. Go back to 2 Samuel 24, verse 4. But the king's word prevailed against Joab and the commanders of the army. The king's word, David's word, was not from God. David had made a decision that he was going to do that as he was tempted by Satan. That was wrong. Even when confronted with the truth from Joab about the guilt that it would bring on Israel, David speaks down to Joab and said, enough, do it. David's word prevailed. When David's word prevailed, he no longer was listening to what the word of God would say. He was not listening to what God was calling him to do. And like David, we, we too do that all the time. Our words prevail against the word. How does it happen? Well, let's, let's take a couple of examples but let's stay within the frame of counting. David wants to count his armies. He wants to count his people. He wants to know how big his military is, how powerful it is. What do we count in order to have our security in something? When does our word prevail over our finances, the moment you say, our finances, the moment you say, this is the count and this is mine. Your word prevails against God's word. When you say to yourself, I know enough about tithing already. I give enough 
and I never need to ask God if he would want me to do more again. Our word prevails against God's word when a single young adult says, I'll tithe when I get a real job or when I get married. A young couple comes into my office for premarital counseling and I talk to them about how money tears so many marriages apart. And let's start with what God says about money. And I see their eyes get wide, not with excitement, which is a problem in and of itself of bad theology, but with, with fear. And tracing that down, I think what they're saying is, when we get our life settled together, we will give. But we giving in the first or second year of marriage isn't complicated by the birth of children. And then the temptation becomes, well, when we get them through college, and after college and you no longer have any retirement, you begin to focus on the future for you and your spouse. You see, your word prevailing against God's word starts really early, and it is often about counting. It might not be money. It might be about counting the cost. Something's happening at work, you know it's wrong. But if you were to say something about it, you're counting the cost of what might come against you. And when there is a spirit at work inside you that says, stand up and speak truth, your word prevails over that word because you don't know what the cost might be. It happens in parenting. If our child's not on this team, their future won't be bright. They may not make a better team. They may not make a team at all. If they don't make a team, they might not have friends. But the husband or the wife says, but the practice and the games are on Sunday mornings. Well, it will only be for a season. Your word begins to prevail over the word of God. And you can't imagine a story that ends like this, that my son or my daughter prevailed they were champions. They started. But church is not a rhythm on Sunday mornings that they, they know or practice. And certainly it might be because of many more things. But when those decisions come into our life and we sense our word beginning to prevail over his word, we're conforming to the pattern of the world instead of being tested and approved by God's will, his good, pleasing, and perfect will. And so often, it has to do with counting. David's word prevailing against Joab's reveals to us a man who had made his decision. How do you know if your word is prevailing against God's? One, it directly disobeys God's word. When there's something in you that is speaking against what God's word clearly prescribes, it's wrong. A second sign that you might be 
allowing your words to prevail against God's is when there is an increased insistence in you for your word, and yet there is a decrease in peace. An increased insistence that it should be this way, that we should do this, but if you're honest, there's a decrease in peace. Another way in which your word may be prevailing is when you say, I'm unwilling to go back and take this before the Lord. I think it's dangerous for us because I think there is so much of us and our own words that prevail. And when the word of God speaks against something in our life that we're counting and we sense that maybe it should be different, we know it might be true if we're unwilling to even go take another look, or unwilling to ask someone else who knows the Lord to give their counsel on what that means. What I'm talking about is application of God's holy word every time you hear it. Every time you hear it or read it or speak it, are you in a position of saying, I need to again submit myself to the holy God and say, what else do you want me to see? God, my word is prevailing in my life, so would you make your word prevail? And he does. He does. Did you see it happen in this text? Joab shows up. Nine months and 20 days later, that's recorded in the section we didn't read. Nine months and 20 days later, Joab shows up And Joab says, there are 800,000 valiant men who drew the sword, and in Judah, there are 500,000. As soon as David hears the numbers, the text tells us in verse 10, David's heart struck him after he had numbered the people. And David said to the Lord, I've sinned greatly. This is a pretty powerful warning. For nine months and 20 days, David's heart wasn't broken over what he had done. What that means is you and me have the ability to allow our word to prevail over our lives for really long seasons of time. For example, right now, if you're thinking that's not me, that's not happening to me, That is your word prevailing over you right now. All of us are tempted to distance ourselves from this continual holy submission to God. But God is not deterred by that, nor overpowered by that. When David gets what he wants, The number has been given. His heart is revealed. His word, David's word, had been prevailing, and now his heart is revealed, and it's breaking. Verse 10, his heart struck him. 
He says in the verse following, I've already read it, I've sinned greatly in what I've done, but now, O Lord, please take away the iniquity of your servant, for I have done very foolishly. So he says, I've done very foolishly, I have sinned greatly, and later in the text in verse 17, he is gonna say, I have done wickedly. What David, the man after God's own heart, shows us is that when we have a heart that's contrite, when the Holy Spirit has broken our heart, when we are struck and we realize we've done wrong, we need to do what David did. We need to quickly go to the Lord and repent. And we need to call sin what sin is. And sin is foolishness. And it is wickedness. And it is great. David responding to the mercy of God to break his own heart tells the Lord just as much. We've seen David's word prevailing. Now we've seen David's heart reveal. And then we see God's heart and God's holy character revealed. What do we see? Well, in this story, David was not met by a spiritual authority in his life to confront him. It was just the powerful, almighty, Holy Spirit that confronted him. But now God uses his seer, Gad, a person to speak truth into David's life, to bring David a message of the consequence of his sin. Now, right now, you may be thinking, but, but he confessed. Yes, he did. And the gospel teaches us that there are consequences to our sins. The seer brings David a word from God. It's strongly emphasized. And the seer speaks to David and says, you have three options. Verse 13, so Gad came to David and told him and said to him, shall three years of famine come to you in your land? Or will you flee three months before your foes while they pursue you? Or shall there be three days pestilence in your land? Now consider and decide what answer I shall return to him who sent me. So Gad has been sent by God. Gad's message is very clear. There are three options. Three years of famine. Three months of you fleeing from man, foes, other enemies. Or three days of pestilence. David's answer is the most significant verse in this, in this narrative. He says to Gad, verse 14, I am in great distress. Let us fall into the hand of the Lord, for his mercy is great, but let me not fall into the hand of man. Two parts to that. First, let me fall, or let us fall into the hand of God for his mercy is great. My friends, it is. It's always great. Don't let me fall into the hands of man. David is saying option number two is off. The Lord decides on option three. And an angel is sent, an angel of death, and 70,000 men are subtracted from the number that Joab had counted because they're dead. 
God in his justice, his righteousness, his wrath poured out upon this people, killed 70,000. Many struggle with that. What do you say to those who struggle? You tell the truth that the true God is not like us. He is holy and set apart. He hates sin. Sin is in all of us. Every attribute that I speak of, you put the word holy in front of because it's set apart. There is nothing like it. This God who slayed these 70,000 did an act that was righteous. It was right. God always does what is right and just. It was good. God is good and does good. It was just. All his ways are justice. It was severe. And it was wrapped in mercy. It's heavy, isn't it? And I understand why people would question it. I also understand why many churches would never allow it to be preached because they're counting the cost of people saying, that's too hard of teaching. And their words prevail against the word. All scripture is God-breathed and is useful for teaching, correcting, training in righteousness. So where is the mercy? The mercy comes when God himself says to the angel who has created such destruction already and now has his sword pointing to Jerusalem. Verse 17, 16, it is enough. Now stay your hand. And the angel of the Lord was by the threshing floor of Arana, the Jebusite. David's, or God stopped his wrath, but his wrath had not yet been satisfied. And so now Gad moves David to a place where he says to David, you must now make a sacrifice to the Lord. Verse 18, go up, raise an altar to the Lord and on the threshing floor of Arana the Jebusite. And so David does, and in the last pieces of this incredible book, David says to Arana, I need to buy your land because on this land, I'm going to build an altar on this spot. And on this spot, I'm going to make a sacrifice, a burnt offering and a peace offering. Arana, recognizing who David is, says, let me provide everything. And David says, no, I must buy the threshing floor. I will buy it from you for a price. I will not offer burnt offerings to the Lord, my God, that cost me nothing. Now let me take you to the most amazing place. David makes the sacrifice. 
the wrath that was stopped has now been satisfied. The peace that comes from this atonement has brought pleasure to God. But the location of where it happens is where the temple is going to be built by Solomon. And for a thousand years, sacrifices are going to be made for the propitiation of man's sins. Blood will be shed. On this very spot, this incredible history of redemption will continue to unfold, pointing to a location not far from there where there's going to be another altar. And that altar that is meant to overcome and satisfy the perfect justice and wrath of God will be met. There won't be three choices. There will only be one. And the sacrifice himself in the garden just before will say, Father, if you are willing, take this cup from me. But the Father isn't willing. And this same God that you've heard about this morning is going to take his perfect wrath and it's going to be poured out on his son because God's word must prevail. And in order for God's word to prevail, the word of God is going to be crucified. And he's going to go through the entire endeavor, becoming sin, taking on all the sins of sinners who are his people. And he is going to say, it is finished. And there is mercy wrapping wrath. And the man that is pointing to the man, Jesus, reveals to us in this text a heart that was broken for God. But what's most important for us is not David's heart. It's God's, whose heart was broken for us. When your words seek to prevail against God's word, and when God's mercy reveals that to you, Confess it quickly. And when he uses the consequences of that to make you more like his son, simply say, I fall on the hands of the Lord because his mercy is great. Lord Jesus, This is not just the New Testament gospel, but the story of your history of redemption continuing to unfold before our very eyes. Lord, it's very possible today that you are drawing someone to yourself for the very first time. It's very possible today that you are exposing in our hearts things that have prevailed over your word. God, bring us to your mercy seat. Lord, as we sing about your grace,
as you prick our hearts, Holy Spirit, let us not run from you any longer, but simply do what David did and fall upon your great mercy. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.